Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show serving Canada's entrepreneurship community. I'm your host, Rick Spence, business journalist, editor, public speaker, and entrepreneur. After 15 years as the national entrepreneurship columnist at the National Post, and as the former editor and publisher of Profit, the magazine for Canadian entrepreneurs, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, scalable, and successful. On this show, we connect you with Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and changemakers. You'll meet the people driving the entrepreneurial movement and we'll share their first-person adventures and their tips, hacks, and best advice for running startup and growth companies. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community for Canada's 3.5 million entrepreneurs. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. To entrepreneurs everywhere, this is your show. Ladies and gentlemen, entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, we're thrilled to have Razor Sulman. Razor is a successful serial entrepreneur, investor, and champion of the Canadian technology ecosystem. Razor is currently CEO and co-founder of Elevate, whose mission is to unite the world's innovators to solve society's biggest challenges. Previously, Razor was founder and the former CEO of Achievers, a corporate social network focused on employee engagement. Razor built Achievers from an idea to a company with $100 million in revenue. It was acquired by Silicon Valley-based Blackhawk Networks in 2015 for $150 million. Welcome to the show, Razor. Rick, so glad to hear your voice and to be on your show. I'm delighted to have you back. Um, you and I go back a long way. We've been uh, we've known about each other since you started up Achievers, and uh, we wrote about you in the, the, the in Profit Magazine when I was editor there. You were on our list of fastest growing companies a few times, and uh, carried Achievers to uh, a, a great future. So it's a great story. Before we get started. Tell me just a little bit about what the message is that you hope that entrepreneurs and other listeners will take away from our conversation today. Yeah, I hope that uh, entrepreneurs leave with this belief that I have that now is the best time to start a company. When you look at all of the changes caused by COVID, disruption and change is the environment in which you want to start a company. And so that's my message to entrepreneur now. There's never been a better time as there's never been anything as disruptive as COVID has been. Wow. So I, you're doing some really interesting things now, but if you were a 19 year, or let's say a 22 year old university grad coming out of school, what kind of opportunities would you look to be hopping on to start your own business on? Yeah. So listen, I always, uh, I do often talk to young grads or people entering the workplace and actually, my advice to them, while I do think it's a great time to start a company and everyone should consider that, I actually think it's also a great time to join a startup, right? You know, clearly, uh, we're seeing that the digital economy, if you look at the winners and losers, losers coming out of COVID, clearly the, the digital native, the tech companies have done very well. And I wish, uh, you know, while I have no regrets in my journey, if I got to be at a hot startup when I graduated and learn from their mistakes, I think there's a huge opportunity to learn from the inside, to get a seat on the bus, so to speak. Having said that, if being an entrepreneur isn't for you, then I would look at the disruption and the change that's happened. Rick, let me share some of the, some of the stats. You know, when you look at 
um, this work from home experiment, right? You know, mm-hmm. back in the day of achievers, I used to believe that culture only happened in the workplace, that you needed to come to the office to be a part of the team to build a company. But man, after these past months, this whole work from home experiment has proven to be pretty fruitful. And I think it's going to be really difficult to bring people back to the office. You saw Shopify make their announcement, Square, Twitter, OpenText. They're never expecting employees to come back to the office. Think about how much change that's going to mean to, to, the, to the landscape and to the opportunities and, and companies that that 22-year-old looking to start uh, has to choose from. Are you aware that Canadian companies are the biggest commercial landlords in the world? I didn't realize that. Yeah. <laughs> our companies and, and our pension funds are very heavily invested in there. So um, let's let's remember this is bad news for our pensions. Yes. Um, if, if, if we can't lease all that space at the, at the rates that we used to have. But yeah, yeah. Obvi- obviously things are changing fast. Um, tell me a little bit more about the difference between going straight into a startup and working at a startup. This isn't what we were going to talk about, but it's a really interesting area. And I've tried to advise people as well that you don't have to have an idea. You don't have to push your own thing. You're young. Learn on somebody else's dime. Learn all you can from somebody else before you start risking your own money. And they all say, oh, I'm almost 23. I don't have time. Yes, right. Oh, my God. Well, listen to me. It may not have been my advice, Rick. It took took me a few more gray hairs to come to that advice that you've been sharing with young people looking to, to, to get in the technology startup space. Yes, you can start a company. You know I feel very passionately about that. But I agree with you, learn on somebody else's dime. And when I look at the, the wildly successful people that were smart enough to take your advice and join me at Achievers, I'll drop some names. Uh, Michelle Zatlin, COO and co-founder of Cloudflare, you know, an $8 billion cybersecurity uh, company out of Silicon Valley was you know, one of the first few employees that helped me start Achievers. You've got Matt and Zach who are running the show at Lupio. Lupio has been identified as one of Canada's 30 most promising startups. So they've done very, very well for themselves. There are dozens of entrepreneurs that first were employees that I got to work with at Achievers. They got to see me make a whole bunch of dumb mistakes <laughs> raise more money than I need to dilute myself. And they're like, you know what? I'm not going to do what Razor did there. I'm going to learn from his mistakes and I'm going to create bigger, more valuable companies. So I am super proud of the Achievers Mafia and the people that were smart enough to take your advice. That, 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 that's pretty amazing. Um, one, of, one, one of my other theories about entrepreneurship is that nothing creates entrepreneurs better than bad bosses. Because when, when you have a bad boss who doesn't listen, who doesn't take feedback and, 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 and stifles the creativity of their employees, then they're creating a whole new generation of entrepreneurs. But I guess good entrepreneurs can also create strong, or strong entrepreneurs just by showing them examples of leadership and be open and, being open and transparent about the mistakes they make. Yeah, happy, uh, I couldn't agree more. We you know we often talk about going through Achievers. You know, we had Achievers Academy. We spent a lot of time on personal and professional development. You know, it was like the MBA of being in a startup, right? And we had a very unique journey. We raised, you know, millions of dollars here at home from some of the best VCs. We raised $30 million from Sequoia Capital. And we had a wildly transparent culture. 
So you can see the board decks, the investor presentations, all of the information that we were sharing with potential investors, our board, we shared transparently with our employees, including all of the metrics that operated the business every day. It's something you guys wrote about way back at Profit around this daily huddle concept that uh, Achievers still does today and we still do at Elevate where you get to see everything about the business in real time, the same time the CEO sees it. And so, uh, you know, definitely lots of learnings that you could get from joining the right startup. Could I tell a story out of school? Oh, of course. I remember once when I was visiting Achievers uh, in Toronto and I got to attend a huddle and I said to her afterwards, you know what? Yeah, it's great. Everyone's there. And, and I said, but nobody was engaged. I said, I didn't see any energy. It was just like, oh, man, we got to go through this again. And I remember you took that comment really seriously, which I was glad that you did. Because, um, you know, maybe at some point, if one's too close, then, you know, you don't know um, how it's going. But I'm, I'm just wondering if you remember that at all. And whether you were able to, if, if so, whether you were able to breathe any new energy into it. You know, as I was telling the story, I'm like, oh, man, Rick came to our, our daily uh, to the point <laughs> meeting. And I remember the day that we just had a, it, it may have been in an off day or an off week because, you know, again, startups go through ups and downs. And we've iterated, I think we're on version nine of that daily huddle where we continue to iterate. And I do remember hearing your feedback, which was on point. And we made the changes to bring back some of that energy, some of the metrics, some of the more real-time information. Uh, and we had taken that feedback very seriously, Rick, and improved from there. So thank you for sharing. Continue to do so. That's cool. Can you can you can you be any more specific about some of the things you did to 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 you know to 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 reengage people in the, in the daily huddle process? Yeah. So actually, I'll tell you what we're doing at Elevate because we also had a daily stand-up. It's actually called Stand Up, uh, which then turned into Stand Up at Home. And there's about 20 people. Elevate's a, it's, a, it's our passion project, Carrie, my wife and I, uh, and Lisa, my co-founder at Elevate. Um, so it's a different context to when you came and saw, you know, sort of hundreds of people. Right. Uh, but we now do it over Zoom. You know, I was wondering, would it translate over a digital platform? And so we, you know, what I think we do better now uh, is... Everybody gets trained up front. We give people an opportunity in the first few minutes to add their own voice and their own topic that they really care about, whoever the host is. And so you just learn from a wide a range of different ideas uh, when that host brings their own uh, flavor to it. Uh, we continue to share all of the metrics transparently, both good and bad. Sometimes we have Zoom drop-ins of guests who might come in. Rick, maybe you could be a guest. And so we've really tried to keep it engaging. But what I would say more than anything is that it's grassroots. Uh, you know, we gave the culture to the team. And every day when I watch it, every day is, while it follows the same format and it goes through the, the agenda in 15 minutes, every day is a little bit different because the employees are truly powered to drive the communications and culture within the organization. And especially now that we're all at home is now more than ever is culture and communication so important. Right, right. For those companies, and it's probably 90% of uh, companies that don't do daily standups, any thoughts on how they might sort of put a toe into the water of that process and begin to tap into that kind of benefits of, of communication, transparency, and engagement? 
Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Uh, you know, listen, uh, I actually learned it back in the days through Profit Magazines. One of the other columnists was Brian Scudamore, who became a friend and mentor of mine. Right. Uh, listen, we learned this from them, Brian and Cameron, the then COO. You know, this is a garbage company in Vancouver. Okay, they are, and they were. They Let's were explain the word garbage. They 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 picked up right? people's rubbish, oh, yes. right? This yes. is now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not that they were garbage. They were in fact my my secret entrepreneur crush around. They were right. crushing it. They were building a billion dollar revenue company, picking up other people's trash. Yeah, the they company known as One Eight Hundred Got Junk today. By the yes. Way. Yep. Yeah, they were the ones who taught me everything that I knew about the daily huddle. It's well-researched, the Rockefeller habits. By no means did we create it. In fact, one of the old values that we had at Achievers was R&D and innovate. And R&D stood for rip off and duplicate. Do not invent stuff on your own. Stand on the shoulders of giants and figure out how to do it better. And they were my giants. What they had done in that company, what amazing story, how transparent they were to me and the EO entrepreneurs around how to do a daily huddle. I would not do it justice, but there are great resources. And you're always welcome to, to join us at Elevate. Drop <laughs> us an, an email. We're happy for you to come in. We're, again, a pretty transparent organization. So if you ever want to see uh, you know, a daily huddle at home, we always would love to ha invite people to join us. Very cool. This is where this is the point where if if there was a just world, we would suddenly invite Brian Su <laughs> Brian Scudamore into the into the program. But uh, we'll, we'll we'll get him on and, and we'll get him talking about you next time. That's what we'll do. Okay. Um, you you mentioned you start off. We were talking about COVID and everything. How is, uh, is how has COVID affected what you're doing and the the the, the Elevate, obviously the company you spend most of the time on, and yes. possibly any of the investment uh, investments that you're involved with. Yeah, great question, Rick. So uh, let's yeah, let's separate sort of my what I do for love and what I do for money, right? What I do for love is Elevate. Uh, myself, Carrie, Lisa, we're the co-founders. It's our passion project. It's our not-for-profit, right? It's what we wanted to do to give back to the Canadian tech ecosystem. We benefited so much from it. I would say, I'll give you some context of the journey. You know, when we started this thing three years ago, actually, it was three years ago that Mayor John Tory said, Razor, we need to do this. He wrote the first check. We started down the journey of building the South by Southwest of Canada, uh, TIF for our generation. And it's been an incredible three years. You know, that first year, about 4,000 people came out to Elevate in 2017. We had a really great 2018, 2019, just to give you some context, three years later, we had over 21,000 people. We had global icons like Michelle Obama, Martha Stewart, Akon, Eric Schmidt, uh, Mark Cuban. You know, I can go on about the people that joined us on those stages. The organization was had grown 5x in three years, less than three years, five times, five to six times. In fact, it's been the fastest growing organization. It was growing at about almost 200% a year over year over year that I've ever been a part of. Wow. And then, <laughs> and then COVID happened. And then right. COVID happened, Rick. And it, and it made what we did illegal. You're not able to gather people. I mean, right now the rules are 10. We were aiming for 30,000. And so we really had to look ourselves in the mirror and saying, is this the best idea? 
Is this the best way for us to serve our community, our country, ourselves? And obviously the answer is no. And that's why we made the decision to retire the festival after three years and go back to the lab and really look deep and ask ourselves, how do we achieve our purpose? Our purpose at Elevate is to unite the world's innovators to solve society's greatest challenges. It's not to host a large-scale tech festival. That was the engagement model. And so the festival is retired, the organization is not, and we, you know, mother necessity is the mother of invention. To the second part of your question around uh, our investment strategy and our thesis, you know, what we do for money uh, so that we can do the things that we do for love, you know, I've been really blessed. You know, we've been pretty, you know, benign to it. Uh, you know, the, the, we, we generally bet in tech stocks and they've generally done pretty well, surprisingly, in the greatest economic recession of our time. We generally bet in, uh, you know, fortunately, residential real estate uh, has been, <laughs> we've been partnered with a number of developers across the city and across the country. Uh, so we're lucky, not good, we're lucky that residential seems to be unscathed. And I think people may be looking uh, to upgrade their residentials places where they have some security in their, their jobs as we spend more and more time at work. And then we've also been doing a lot of debt investing, Rick. Uh, you know, we're super passionate about founders not diluting themselves like I did through venture capital, right? Venture capital has an expectation, an IRR, an internal rate of return of 40%. That means, just to translate this for you, you know, if you get a million dollars in venture capital, they need to see $400,000 back every single year compounded. If you raise $40 million of venture capital like me, they want to make $16 million every single year, which dilutes the founder, the management team, early investors, friends and family, and employees. The people that I care about get hurt the most when I bring in venture capital. And so I joined the board of Expresso. Uh, I've been, I've been uh, very close with Michelle and Andrew. All of these new emerging, non-dilutive revenue, reoccurring SaaS-based lending that don't take a board seat, that don't dilute founders or their employees is where I've been spending a lot of our time. We've been investing heavily through debt. And the cost of that is maybe as low as 8 as much as 15%. It is literally a 60 to 80% off sale off venture capital. And they will lend to those types of companies that are high growth in the tech space. Razor, you talked about the, the dilutive aspects of venture capital, yet that's something a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs still uh, search for. And of course, they um, explain, the, uh, the, they rationalize the deal by saying, well, sure, they'll come in and take 20 or 30 percent, but their money will make such a big difference and we'll, be, we'll, we'll have a smaller share of a much bigger pie. So from, it sounds like your experience was a little bit different. So how did that work? Yeah, so listen to me. I, uh, I drank that Kool-Aid too. <laughs> I think VCs are fantastic marketers. But let's do the math here. You do your Series A and you lose 20 to 30% of your company. And then you do your Series B and you're successful and you lose another 20 to 30%. And that story continues on. And then you, let's say you are so lucky, you are in the rarefied air of entrepreneurs that have a, a, an exit, whether you sell your company for hundreds or billions of dollars, 
or your uh, you take the public, right? The the successful, and I want to underline the word successful venture backed entrepreneurs. Rick, let me ask you a question: When they sell their company, how much on average do they own? Ten uh, percent. Less than seven. Less than seven. Less than seven. They've diluted themselves ninety three percent. I'm like at that point, it's not your company. You work for somebody for seven percent equity in the company, which is fine. And don't get me wrong, seven percent of a hundred million or, or a billion is a really big number. But imagine you had someone like me that had gone through this journey, right? Uh, and had learned. And I was and I was lucky too. You know, we had twenty five percent of the company when we had sold it, so we were very lucky that other entrepreneurs uh, had told me things in sort of a forum confidential, whether you're an EO or YPO, who taught me the tricks of how not to get basically screwed by venture capitalists. So I consider myself a very, very lucky founder because other founders had shown me the way of non-dilutive capital. And so at a high level, just to kind of give people a perspective, right, today, you know, we all we all you know worshipped. Oh, venture capital! They're they're so smart. They're going to help me grow a business. They're going to teach me the things that I don't know. I have found that not to be true at all. And I got I raised money from Sequoia Capital, the best air quotes venture capitalist on the planet. Let me tell you, there is no VC on the planet that is worth forty percent <laughs> rate every year, compounded every year after year after year after year. There's none. I have not met any. My money is not worth 40%, okay? So I don't believe that they'll create enough value for the economics that they take. That's why they tend to do really, really, really well. And often founders, I'm not saying don't do well, but you look at the stats and there's just a better way of building a company. And to me, that better way is revenue, 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 debt. Those are your top five sources <laughs> of capital, okay? Did you forget that? It's revenue, 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 debt, right? Revenue is the most magical source. When customers give you money for creating value and solving their problems, you have created something of value you should be proud of. Not when, an, when a VC gives you millions of dollars because you have a burn rate that you have mismanaged your expenses and have not done a good job of getting customer revenue. And then once you've done a great job of capturing every dollar of customer revenue, there's this new thing or this exciting thing called debt. And whether that's SaaS lending, revenue financing, reoccurring, there's so many forms and functions. But now every Canadian bank is in the debt business and they'll lend you money at 5%. It's ridiculous. Take it. Take as much <laughs> debt at 5% as possible. And we don't think that way as Canadians because we think there's something bad about debt, that debt is a dirty word. Let me tell you, if I had the choice of missing my goal and having the partnership at Sequoia Capital on my ass or having the, you know, the commercial banking manager at TD on my ass for their 5%, I'll take the TD guy harassing me all the time, Right. So they don't take a board sheet. They don't take a personal guarantee. It's like 80% less expensive. And they exert way less control on your business, allowing entrepreneurs the freedom and creativity to navigate these ups and downs. Startup life is difficult. It's unpredictable. And so I would always side on revenue, 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 debt. Fantastic. What would have happened at Achievers if you had been taking bank financing and not 
and, and, and not venture capital. I presume you would not have been on Profit Magazine's list of fastest growing companies every year. I disagree. And okay, maybe, maybe, maybe I wouldn't have. Maybe I wouldn't have. But I disagree, and I'll tell you why. Um, you know, Betakit, uh, Douglas, uh, the, the editor-in-chief, asked me that same question after I sold the company, and congratulations, and you did great. And, I'm, and I, for some reason, I just had this, like, I couldn't get over the fact of how much, when we divided the pie, okay, because I diluted the company so much, about 60% of it were owned by VCs and, and outside investors, and 40% of the company were owned by me, by my management team, by my early investors, my friends and family, and my employees. So 40% to the good guys, 60% to the bad guys, okay? And what uh, Expresso and Ucker and the CEO of Expresso had done is like, well, let's do a new exercise, Razor. What if you had raised the same amount of money, right, so that I can still grow the company, I could still be on Profit Magazine, Rick Spence would still want to interview me, right? So I had the same outcome, I just changed the sources of my capital, okay? And I had gotten a third of my money had come through debt versus equity. And two-thirds had come from equity. I was, remember, I was 100% equity is what I had raised. I'm suggesting he did an exercise with me that a third only came from debt. Rick, do you know how much money my friends, my family, my management team, my employees, and myself would have made had I been smart enough to take one third of the same amount of capital that I raised, the $40 million, but took a third in debt, we would have made $20 million more on the exit. Because of my own inability to find the right capital structure and to read all the TechCrunch press listings of like, oh, this is what all the smart entrepreneurs are doing. They're taking VC. And I drank the Kool-Aid, I made the mistake, and now I would tell every entrepreneur, get as much debt as you can. Fascinating. I've, I've never actually seen anyone make that calculation before. So that, that's really interesting. Just to finish off on this topic, um, where would you suggest that an entrepreneur go first if they wanted to explore the world of debt? Man, that sounds like something my father would have done. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, the world of debt is so vast and so unexplored, Okay. First and foremost, depending on the stage of your company, if you're, let's say, a SaaS or tech company that's got millions of dollars and you're reoccurring, you will get bank financing. Every tier one Canadian bank now has one. So I would go talk to your commercial bank officer, or most of them now have set up innovation banks at the big banks. So these little specialty groups that focus on tech companies. That's where I would go first. Second, I would look for what they're called like non-banks. So like clear bank but the bank is spelled with a C, not a K. Right. And ClearBank, Michelle and Andrew have an amazing business and they do revenue financing. So if you need, if you're earlier stage and you need $100,000, well, they'll take no equity. They'll charge you like a 6% fee, not even interest, but a 6% fee. And so then over time from your revenues, you pay them back $106,000, right? So I love that. It's a perfect alignment of interest. They want you to have more revenue so that you can borrow more money. If you get a little bit bigger, you know, Espresso Capital, you know, full disclosure, uh, I'm an investor. I was on the board. I'm very passionate about what they're doing there. They're lending out $10 million, $20 million. Uh, but then there's a whole bunch of other programs. FedDev has one. Sophie, an Ontario program. There's a whole bunch of government debt or grant programs that you can get capital at low 
to zero rates of interest. So I think the industry is so much more matured than when I was going and raising money, uh, you know, back almost 15 years ago when I started my company. So I think uh, I think I would, if I was an entrepreneur, I would stop reading TechCrunch and 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 fantasizing about raising venture capital, and I would do the smart thing and look at all of your debt options. Yeah, that's interesting. I've, <laughs> it, I, it, that was a great great conversation. I was surprised we went into it, but I, I'm going to look into this some more because it's very interesting. In the meantime, the real world, a lot of us are have been affected by COVID nineteen and the new forces that we're seeing out there that are, uh, you know, the, the, the anti-racism, the, the social change uh, uh, activity that we're seeing out there. Just wondering how this fits into your model of disruption, because it, it's not just COVID. It's also we, we, we seem to be discovering new ways of doing business, new ways of living our lives, uh, new respect for the environment as well as uh, concerns for social justice. So how does this yeah. all fit together in Razor's world? Yeah, great question, Rick. You know, I think that um, the world has changed for the better. And I know that seems surprising when you're like, but COVID and racism and all the other challenges. But what I love that I'm seeing happen is this concept called stakeholder capitalism, okay? So most of us know about shareholder capitalism, right? The notion that companies exist for the sole purpose of enriching their investors, that companies should at all costs maximize shareholder return at the expense of their employees, their customers, their communities, the environment. It doesn't matter as long as you made shareholder money. I think those days are over. And COVID is an accelerant. Right. It, it transformed things so much more quickly. And we now need businesses to be a force for social change. We need businesses to not only create value for their shareholders, which is very important, but for all stakeholders. We need them to be thinking about their employees and their employee well-being. We need them to be thinking about their customers because, you know, particularly you're seeing this with like millennials and Gen Z. You know, they want to buy from companies that share their values. Uh, I'll, I'll tell a story of, a, of a, an amazing woman who works with me at Elevate. And we were having, you know, she's a member of the black community. And when all of this was going on and still going on and will continue to go on, uh, we had a conversation around what can Elevate do? What can I do as a leader? What can we do to support? And she was just talking to me about how when all of this was unfolding with uh, with George Floyd and, and, and the systemic racism issues that we've been having for hundreds of years. She talked to me and said, you know, I went on my Instagram and if I couldn't see the company visibly displaying their support for Black Lives Matters or, you know, anti-racism, she would unfollow them. Let me be clear. It's not that she would buy from people only that were shared her belief system. That was also true. But if you if you're silence, if you were silent, she would unfollow you, right? And I think that that's the change that we're seeing in the world. We're seeing customers really resonate with brands that uh, share their beliefs, and they want to vote with their dollars for companies that they believe that not only are creating a great product or service, 
but they're also helping create a better world. And so I think this notion of stakeholder capitalism, that we're all in this together, that we need to be mindful about the environment, the way we treat gig workers is atrocious, right? It's, it's exploitation, right? We don't call them employees, we call them essential workers, but we treat them w the worst of any type of employee. I think those days have got to end and we got to focus on, you know, I think business uh, is the most powerful platform in the world. And we need to make sure that our businesses are creating the world we want to live in. That is such a big change. I mean, we've got the whole Chicago school of economics that says, as, as you said, you know, the business of business is business. It creates the wealth for individuals and enables them to give or, or, or act philanthropically. That's a hard one. Uh, as they wish. But they say business just aggregates and redistributes the money. It's up to individuals. So how do you think we've managed to get to the idea that no, businesses do have a stake in, in, in the community? Yeah, listen, the idea that I, I get the notion of like, yes, let's maximize profits. Let's let those profits go to shareholders. And then those individuals will make their own determinations. But first of all, let's just see how that's played out. Right. Since the 1970s, we've seen the greatest divide of income inequality in the history of the world, and it's being accelerated. And COVID was only that much more of an accelerant. Right. So, you know, if you look at the S&P 500, for example, you have 490 companies that are down and, you know, five to six tech companies that are crushing it. Right. Jeff Bezos, right? Jeff Bezos, you know, the richest man in the world, you know, went through the world's most expensive divorce not that long ago, right? He, 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 uh, in his part of a settlement with his wife, Mackenzie, you know, they had, he had agreed to give her $35 billion. It was the most expensive divorce in history. The second most expensive divorce was, was, uh, was Rupert Murdoch at a billion dollars. Okay, so he's at 35 times the most expensive divorce. And during the worst economic crisis, okay, we have Jeff Bezos make up the $35 billion. And we have employees at Amazon that are, you know, worried about COVID, worried about getting sick. And, you know, Amazon's doing the best they can. But clearly, the world has not, this business of business of business has not served everybody. Clearly, there are people that greatly benefit from it, and clearly there are people that don't. And so you need to change the value prop of what a business is intended to do. Because again, if we rely on sort of trickle-down economics that philanthropists and billionaires will come to save the world, I don't, I don't buy that. I don't think that, you know, uh, exploiting gig workers or creating uh, creative tax structures right, through their foundations where they can donate money to themselves so that they can then spend it to get more power and more influence and more control actually is going to create a better world for all of us. It'll create a world for some of us, but I just don't see how humanity benefits if business's sole purpose is to maximize uh, investor value. Where, where do you see the uh, Canadians being along this uh, range of moving from uh, – profit-centered capitalism to stakeholder-centered capitalism, if I can use those terms. Are we well advanced in that journey? Do you think there's still a lot of people need to be educated, re-educated? That has ominous implications brought along. 
Yeah, I would say outside of the Nordic countries, no one's really doing this well, including Canada. You know, I think we're a little better than the U.S. You know, we were smart enough to come up with social safety nets from EI and universal health care. Right. I'm not think about how grateful we are for universal health care. But why end there? Right. I think Canada uh, has a, a role to play in leading the world and showing them how you can create meaningful, valuable companies that globally scale. Look at Shopify. Yet you can also provide for your citizens. I mean, why, you know, after this COVID uh, experiment or, or, or situation we're in, you know, why the Canadian government wouldn't nationalize old age homes, right? We've seen the, the devastation that, that, that's happened when left to the private sector of caring for our elderly population, right? The people that, that built this country, that paid the taxes are now in homes and 80% of the deaths from COVID have been happening at poorly managed private enterprises who are just trying to maximize profits and not truly take care of those all stakeholders. So I do think the government has a bigger role to play. And I'd say corporate Canada has a bigger role to play around social innovation and investing in our backyard. You know, again, globalization, while it's here to stay, you know, to save a couple of cents and send all of our orders to China and bankrupting our own manufacturing sector, right? Like, wouldn't you rather we be paying a few cents more for PPE, but then be self-sufficient? And it's very easy for me to say in hindsight, but I do think that as we emerge from COVID, we need to think about which, which workers are truly essential, which populations are vulnerable, that maybe the private sector should not be responsible for them, and then which supply chains are truly critical to you know, uh, our country, and how do we invest in those. So I think Canada is going to emerge a very different country coming out of COVID. Razor, I wonder if you've been able to identify whether there's a benefit a financial benefit to companies who actually engage in this kind of stakeholder thinking, that if they're being more supportive of their community, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that says that uh, Gen X, for instance, is much more concerned with uh, purpose and social, uh, social change, social justice than previous generations, and that they want employers who share their values. And you, through Achievers, you were able to track what actually motivates and engages employees over the year, so o o over the years that you were there. So, what do you, do you think? Are there these additional benefits that can accrue to companies that actually show this kind, these kinds of pro-social attitudes in the behavior that they display? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I almost think it's coming from a nice-to-have position to a must-have. I think if companies are not clear about their social purpose, they're going to actually start to see some negative financial implications, not alone, not let alone the not even capitalizing on the opportunity, but actually being held back. You know, let's start with your employees first and foremost. Really, that's where business begins. Uh, we're seeing top talent uh, be mindful and selective about making sure that they're working for a company that they believe in, that has a social purpose, that they can be proud of telling their friends and that they're contributing to something that's not just making their shareholders wealthy. So I think in terms of an engagement tool, 
uh, a motivation tool, having a sense of purpose of why you do what you do and clearly communicating that to all of your employees, to your candidates, you're going to recruit, uh, you know, you're going to recruit missionaries and not mercenaries. So I think lots of benefits there on the recruiting and retention side from your employees. Next, when it comes to your customers, you know, think, just let me give you, let me paint you a picture. Today, if you had the choice of being Dove and leading a campaign around inner beauty or Victoria's Secret and running a campaign about unrealistic you know, expectations on the female body, who would you rather be right now? Who is on the wrong side of history? Who's on the right side of history, right? So clearly, Rick, who would you, right? Who would you rather buy from today? I was really hoping that you wouldn't force it. No, of course. Uh, I, I love the Dove campaign. Right? I mean, they're selling soap. They're selling soap. What, what does soap have to do with body image and real beauty? And Right? But it's very much a social mission, which they know their customers who come in all shapes and sizes, all colors and heights and widths, right? Buy more soap. So it's not only the right thing to do, but it's good for business because more people are going to buy your product and less people are going to boycott you because they don't believe in your values and what you stand for. You know, the other stakeholder group, and I think this is the one that most people don't realize, is that there's this emerging group of investors around uh, compassionate capitalism or ESG, environmental and social good, or uh, sustainable finance. Uh, Larry Flint, the, uh, the CEO of BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, was coming out of Davos was sustainability. And Larry Flint made the announcement that he, the world's largest asset managers, will no longer invest in any companies that are doing harm to the environment. Yeah, I should, just, gonna... point, I just, should just point out that Larry Flint was the publisher of Hustler. Larry Fink, oh, is, Larry Fink. Fink is the head of BlackRock. <laughs> that is an excellent distinction. <laughs> Fink. Yeah, no, no, he, he, he's, he's, he changed the whole, I think he, Larry Fink changed the whole uh, position, the whole strategy behind uh, uh, purposeful investing when, when, when BlackRock came out and, and announced that. And people are still, before that, I guess it had mainly been sovereign funds. And right. now we're seeing that Wall Street cares. And when Wall Street starts caring, you know it's a new age. Yes, absolutely. That's where the money's going. And so you've seen so many other asset managers fall in line with sustainable finance. And so I think there'll be advantages to entrepreneurs who, again, can demonstrate that they're not only doing well for their investors, but they're doing well by all stakeholders. Yeah. This has been an amazing conversation. Um, so many changes going on in society, so many opportunities for entrepreneurs to, 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 to grab hold in different ways of the trends that we're seeing there. What do you think are the biggest lessons that every entrepreneur needs to have learned from this period? Yeah, I think as an entrepreneur, you're always learning, actually. You know, I, I was part of the office-centric culture at Achievers. You had to come into the building. You had to get work done. You had to have cool space. And, you know, I've experienced something different from work from home. And now I'm very passionate about the hybrid workforce. And that's something that never would have occurred to me. And so I think about all of the things that have changed and all of the lessons, all of the assumptions that we had in the world of how the world of work uh, and business used to work and how COVID has 
really turn them up on their heads. And so keep learning, right? Keep focusing on solving problems, uh, get close to your customers. I mean, those principles are always true, but I think now more than ever, when customers have new needs, when we stop doing things the way we used to do them, and now we're open to a whole new way of doing business, I think that creates a tremendous amount of disruption, but with disruption comes a tremendous amount of opportunity. How can people sort of see, determine what an opportunity is? How, you know, in, in terms of some of the investment that you've done, you know, as they look and they see all this disruption, what kind of thinking process does it take to say, I bet there's an opportunity in this? Yeah. Well, listen, I will, uh, I will share a personal story. Uh, you know, I've been, uh, you know, very passionate about uh, employee uh, engagement with achievers, but more specifically, employee wellness and well-being specifically, the, the health, the self, and the financial wealth and well-being of your employees. And I think of, again, a post-COVID world where more companies, as they're working from home, um, are now having to think about, wait a second, there's no beer cart Fridays, there's no sports leagues, there's no pizza on you know Wednesdays, there's no fancy lunches. And all of a sudden, this back burner idea that I've always had around, can the world use uh, a reinvented or reimagined wellness programs where companies are taking the responsibility for the well-being of their employees uh, and now I'm like, oh my God, yes, of course. You know, if it, if it was a good idea, if it was a vitamin before, it's a painkiller now because every CEO that I talk to is worried about productivity, is worried about the health of their employees, the well-being of their employees. They can no longer see them on a regular basis. And so they need a whole bunch of new ways to connect with them because healthy, happy employees create greater, the greatest value for all stakeholders. So that was my own revelation I'm sure when entrepreneurs think about the many different ideas that they have, uh, I would stress test it. I would take it to other people and ask them for their feedback and, and be wary that most people, because they don't want to hurt your feelings, and most people you're going to talk to are Canadians, <laughs> are going to be polite to you. So don't let the false positive fool you into thinking you have a really good idea. You should go to people who don't care, who are naturally contrarian who don't owe it to you to be nice to you. And I actually find founders to be the best people to pitch ideas off of to see, hey, do you think this would be an opportunity? And then start small. Like, what's the next step? How do you sell the first widget? Because until you sell the first widget, you don't get to the 10th or the 1,000th or the millionth. So don't necessarily think about, I had the stress around, oh, you know, Achievers got to $150 million in value. My next company's got to get to a billion dollars. And sometimes when you think big, it's overwhelming. So I'm encouraging entrepreneurs to start small, to think about those opportunities that they've always been passionate about, because I think that's where great ideas originate from, or more so the execution that you need to see a great uh, or an idea through and then and then stress test that with entrepreneurs uh, and founders because I think they tend to be very candid with other founders at least my experience has been that way right right you know what I'm going to take away from this conversation though is looking for a vitamin 
that has turned into a painkiller. I think that's a wonderful metaphor for from going from a nice to have for a to to a need to have. Yeah. To, uh, I'll, I'll walk over burning coals to get that to solve my toothache or whatever. Uh, so yeah, from a, from from a vitamin to a painkiller is what you're looking for. A killer painkiller. All right. Thank you so much. I love the way you think, Razor. Finally, last question we ask people is, what is the best, most timely single piece of advice, executable, executable advice that you would offer entrepreneurs trying to get ahead, trying to be more successful today? Today is the best day to start a company. There has never been. No, you said that at the beginning. You got to do something. I know. I know. I was going to try to bookend my (laughs) lessons because if if I started with that, isn't it? That's uh, not how we do things here. Now, more value right to the end. Okay. So, what would I think about? Um, You know, I, again, I'll I'll sort of walk come out of my own shoes. Uh, For me, my businesses have been very much attached and a part of my identity. Uh, when I was way back at Laurier and I started a clothing company focused on campus clothing, I was like Mr. Laurier and I would wear all the gear, right? When I started Achievers and I was focused on corporate culture and employee engagement, that's really who I wanted to be and where I got a lot of joy. When I think about my next chapter in wellness, I want it like I'm, you know, Rick, I, I'm, I'm, you know, we're, we've been friends for a long time, which means, you know, we got a few more gray hairs. And I want to live Speak forever. For and so <laughs> and so I want to think about the my own well-being, those of my employees, my friends and families, and the companies that I can affect. So I would say my my lesson or my advice is think of uh, your company as a as a magnification of your own identity. So make sure you see yourself being the embodiment of the company you're trying to create. That's beautiful. I really like that. That's very cool. I think that's very useful. We've covered a lot of ground today. We've talked about uh, purpose and social change. We've talked about technology and and disruption. We had a wonderful uh, sidebar on non-dilutive growth capital that I uh, recommend everyone get into. And we also talked about the difference between the vitamin and the painkiller. I love that. Razor, thank you so much. Razor Solman is uh, an entrepreneur, someone who's been thinking a lot about entrepreneurship and is now really trying to bring entrepreneurship and social change together. So that means we're going to have to talk some more. Thanks very much, Razor. Thank you so much, Rick. It's always been a pleasure chatting with you over the years. I look forward to continuing the conversation for years to come. Thanks, Razor. Always a pleasure. We'll talk again. Thank you for joining us this week in the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show dedicated to unlocking the potential of every entrepreneur. Stay tuned another minute to hear the latest startup community news and the upcoming events lineup, including our hashtag Startup Chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday at 12 noon Eastern time. I sometimes show up there too. Until next week, I'm your Startup Canada podcast host, Rick Spence. 